trying to leave, I think there's a lot of opportunity here in Puerto Rico in terms of ministry. A lot of the folks that we minister to just live alone because families have moved onto the mainland and people tend to leave behind some of their most vulnerable family members. It takes their support system away from them. And so one, who I later met as Rosa, sent me a text that said, I live alone, I don't have any food left, please just help me. So I asked, can I call you? And realized that she lived near one of our local pastors. And so he and his wife came here and went to see Rosa and really ministered to her and invited her to church. She agreed and, um, and listened intently to the message and, and then after the service accepted Christ. This is something that God is doing and I get to join him in because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And in gratitude, we respond by serving others. And so that's the importance of giving because that enables us to continue to meet these needs and ensure that the gospel is proclaimed and preached and that churches are planted and that missionaries are sent. Puerto Ricans, they've been through a lot and yet we're gonna do what we need to do to overcome this and we're gonna overcome this together. well as Mark and Emma, and if I left anybody out, I apologize. And also that, that uh, missionary that was featured, uh, Itamar, was actually at one time did collegiate ministry here in New England. So we've got a close tie with, uh, with our friends that we can support through Annie Armstrong. Well, again, welcome to everybody, whether you're here in the sanctuary or watching online. We're glad to have you. My name is John Bishop. I'm one of the deacons here. First of all, if you are a visitor or haven't been here or never done it before, you should find a connection card in the seat back in front of you. We would love for you to fill that out and uh, put it in the offering plate when it comes around. If you're online, you can scroll down below the video. You should be able to connect to the card that way. We would love to have you fill it out. Help us get to know you better, know what we can do for you, how we can pray for you, and, and all the good stuff that is part of being a church family. So. Please do that. Um, I'm going to pray for the offering here in a moment. Uh, if you are online, you can give to the Annie Armstrong directly through the website. As you go online, you'll see an immediate drop-down box for funds that includes a mission fund. If you click on the mission fund, then you'll be taken to a sub-fund sub drop-down where Annie Armstrong is one of the options. So make sure that your Annie Armstrong income goes directly to where it needs to go. And of course, if you're here in the sanctuary, we've got envelopes, or if you're writing a check, just put it on the memo line, Annie Armstrong. All right, uh, one other thing before I pray, we will see an Acts 4 video at the end of service today. Please hang around for that. Please be reminded of our church outing advance on Saturday, May 7th for that. There's a sign-up sheet, and uh, we'll hear more directly from that a little bit later on in our service. So please let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, Lord, just for all the attributes that you have, some of which we might have a glimmer of understanding about and some of which we have no clue, Lord, in our human brain. So we 
thank you for all of it. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You are the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity to gather in your house. Lord, we know that the church is not a building. The church is a family, Lord. But we do thank you for the opportunity that we had yesterday to keep up this building and, and its grounds, Lord. Thank you for protecting all of us from injury and for just the great time of fellowship that we had, Lord, in service to you. And please continue to draw on us to want to serve you in that way and in other ways, Lord. In terms of our giving, Lord, let us give with sacrificial hearts, Lord. Let us not just give out of our own abundance. Let us give all of our time and our money sacrificially, Lord, that we would honor you by doing so. And, Lord, we trust that you would direct those resources to where they're the needed the most in your economy, not in ours, Lord. Lord, thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Glory and power be to you, the only 
wonder, awestruck wonder, at the mention of your name. Jesus, your name is Thank you for this time of worship, Lord, for you are worthy to be praised, Lord. What an honor it is so we can be here on this day and every day and just sing out to you, query out to you, that you are the King of kings and Lord of lords who reigns forever and ever and ever. Lord, we just thank you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Praise God. He has opened our eyes to allow us to know He is indeed that King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Thank you so much, worship team. Amen. We blessed this morning.
and the infamous creaky door of the sanctuary has been fixed. There it is. We're going to miss that sound. Special effects. Thank you to the trustees, our new uh, team of trustees who kind of put all that together. And thank you to John Estela, who uh, helped put all the supplies and get everybody ready and organized. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, this morning I want to say a special greeting uh, to Tim and Cindy Coon. Uh, Tim and Cindy have been serving at Faith in Newtown for the last about 15 years or so. Came from Pennsylvania, starting a church out of the blue, from scratch, been faithfully serving in the Newtown area. Uh, gospel witnesses, uh, got to become good friends with Tim through the years, and uh, really treasured his friendship. And so this is a rare, he's usually preaching right now. So I uh, had an opportunity to be here today. Make sure you greet them after the service. We're really delighted joined us here this morning. A real treasure and pleasure for us. Um, wanted to follow up with the Annie Armstrong offering. Again, uh, we're taking this up around the Easter time. We have a goal of $4,000. We have a ways to go. We have a few more weeks to gather up the offering. And I wanted just to uh, point out in our bulletin here, you have a prayer guide that the North American Mission Board puts out. And you'll see different missionaries are spotlighted. You have folks in Canada, Washington, D.C., and so forth. Uh, the Lord leads you. Lift up some of these missionaries uh, this week. Uh, what an encouragement it is to know people are praying for you and for these folks to be lifted up. I'm sure God, uh, we will praise God for what he will be doing in their lives. And so we, John mentioned Itamar here serving in Puerto Rico. Uh, she says in this prayer guide that Puerto Rico is an island that just can't catch a break. In the past seven years, it's faced an economic crisis, two major hurricanes, a political scandal, six weeks of nonstop earthquakes, and the COVID-19 pandemic. But God is using that great need to open doors for the gospel. And her work as Nam Sin Relief Missionary or Ministry Coordinator, Itamar mobilizes local churches and leads volunteer teams to repair homes and help people in crisis. And as she does, she connects with people in need of real, lasting hope. The Lord has used tragedy to awaken the hearts of many on the island who previously placed their hope in money, health, and stability, and now can see all fleeing. How fleeting it all is in light of the solid rock found in the gospel. So we're thankful for her service there in Puerto Rico. Let's lift her up and those who are serving along with her. Lord, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this beautiful day to praise you. You are worthy of all of our praise. You have all authority. We thank you that you have overcome through the gospel. Lord, we're thankful that you are the sovereign king over all nations. And as we take up this offering and pray for North American missions, God, we pray for the country of Puerto Rico. God, we pray for these teams to share boldly as they meet physical needs. We pray for hearts to be open to the gospel and for more missionaries to join the work. May you spread your kingdom, we pray, in Puerto Rico. And Lord, we pray for the continued situation in the Ukraine. God, we pray for the gospel to spread here at this time. We pray even today that families who are desperate and in the 
despair, maybe grieving, that they might find and hear a word of hope, Lord. Someone would share the message of Christ, and it would fall on the good soil, we pray. We pray for your uh, provision for refugees, for people who are hurting and hospitalized. God, we pray for peace to spread and to be cemented here in this conflict. Lord, we pray for our church. Lord, we pray for all of those who are sick. God, we pray that you would give them strength, encourage them through this time of worship. Maybe they're watching online. Maybe be encouraged by the, the music and the message, Lord. We're thankful for that technology. And now, as Lord, we look at your word. We thank you that we get the precious treasure of your word. There is nothing else like it. Nothing else like it at all. We pray that it would be clear in our hearts and minds and that, Lord, your spirit would move us today to respond however your spirit leads so that we are different, we are changed, we are encouraged and built up as a result of this time, your word. And all God's people pray, amen. amen. I'd like to begin by reading a, a poem of sorts. Uh, it is anonymous, but some attribute it to a pastor, who, a young pastor who was martyred in Zimbabwe. It says this, I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed. I have Holy Spirit power. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I'm a disciple of His. I won't look back. Let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My past is redeemed. My present makes sense. My future is secure. He goes on to say, I now live by faith, lean on his presence, walk by, walk by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power. I won't give up, shut up, let up, until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up, preached up for the cause of Christ. I am a disciple of Jesus. I must go till he comes, give till I drop, preach till all know, and work till he stops me. And when he comes for his own, he will have no problem recognizing me. My banner will be clear. Powerful words. Amen? Amen. Powerful words. This man was focused on Christ. And we should be thankful for this young man's commitment to follow Jesus Christ. However, we should not hear these words and think that this is just for the rare, elite Christian. Amen? God wants every disciple of Christ to have a similar commitment to Him. Church, we can have as much of God as we want. Amen? Amen. Amen. We have as much of God as we want. We have, as he said there, we too have Holy Spirit power. And he can empower us to serve him this way. And our passage that we have before us is going to focus on Christ and help us to live with that type of single-minded commitment. So are you ready to dig into God's word here this morning? Yes. All right. Let me invite you to 1 Peter chapter 4. I had a couple weeks here to focus on Easter and such. Now we're back in 1 Peter. 
1 Peter chapter 4. We're continuing this series that the Apostle Peter wrote, this letter to churches in Asia Minor, Minor sometime in uh, the mid-60s AD. Now, if you recall from the very end of chapter 3, kind of in the middle part, Peter was addressing the entire church about enduring persecution. We know that persecution and suffering, they're not easy to endure. And sometimes we need strong motivation to uh, encourage us, is it all worth it to keep following Christ in the midst of these things? And so Peter understands that, and he gave us some really strong motivation at the end of chapter 3 by pointing to the example of Jesus. Because he talked about how, when we, how Jesus, how he too endured unjust suffering. But that was not the end of the story. After he endured unjust suffering, what happened? God exalted him. He raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven. And now he is reigning as the king of kings. Likewise, God will exalt us if we endure suffering halfway. No. All the way to the end, just as Jesus did. Since Christ's suffering was the pathway to glory, we should prepare, suffer, prepare for unjust suffering as well. And that leads to our passage that we have before us. There's two parts. First part is focus on Christ's suffering. Focus on Christ's suffering. Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter said, look, Christ suffered in the flesh, and we should arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Christ is our paradigm. But what does he mean when he says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased to sin? kind of a strange thing for Peter to say. What does he mean by that? I think what he means is that our willingness to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ indicates that the power of sin is broken in our lives. Let me repeat that. Our willingness to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ indicates that the power of sin is broken in our lives. For example, if a person makes a profession of faith and then experiences some persecution or unjust suffering, it will reveal whether or not their response will reveal the genuineness of their faith. Do you remember Jesus' parable of the sower? You guys remember that? Jesus tells this parable of a man who has seed in his pocket. And he goes out and he just scatters it as he walks along. And it, and it lands on four different types of soil. Barren, thorny, rocky, and good soil. And it only takes in the last type of soil, the good soil. Jesus tells this parable because he's illustrating how the seed, which is an illustration of the gospel, it lands on different types of soils, doesn't it? It lands on different types of parts. And it's only the good soil that actually lands and bears fruit. And it's actually a genuine conversion. All right? 
Now, with the rocky ground, I'm not going to talk about all four, but with the rocky ground, Jesus was trying to get across the point that some people hear the gospel, they hear the gospel, and they get excited about it, right? I mean, where they're at in life, all of a sudden, boom, it connects with them, and they're very excited about Jesus. And people around like, hey, that's great, man. This person is very interested in Christ. But then all of a sudden, some persecution comes. And then what happens? They turn away from Christ. Jesus says here in Mark chapter 4, verse 16 and 17, These are the ones who sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. So if a person is persecuted and falls away, it shows that their faith was never genuine. Do you see that? So what Peter does is Peter takes that principle that Jesus is teaching here and he flips it around on the positive side of it. In other words, what, what Peter is saying, if a person is persecuted and they keep following Christ, it reveals that their faith is what? Genuine. Amen. I think his point is very insightful. Peter's point here. Because unjust suffering is hard. And so if someone is willing to go through unjust suffering for the sake of Christ, it shows that their faith is sincere. And that the power of sin has ceased in their life. I don't think Peter is saying that they no longer sin. But what he is saying is that something significant has happened in their life. Now that they're, they're showing that they are willing to suffer for Christ, they have a greater desire to obey the will of God. Everybody following so far? Yeah. Before moving on, let me ask you a couple of questions. We're talking about this. Would you be willing to lose a great job for the sake of Christ? Would you be willing to lose a dear relationship, a friendship, for the sake of Christ? Would you be willing to experience a significant financial loss for the sake of Christ? Notice I keep saying for the sake of Christ. I'm not talking about us doing dumb things on our own, right? Sometimes we do dumb things and we reap the consequences. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when we experience, for the sake of Christ, some sort of persecution or unjust suffering, are you willing <coughs> to experience that for the sake of Christ? Because if you are, it shows that something significant has happened in your life. That you are ready to follow Christ Regardless of the circumstances. The power of sin has been broken. There's still the presence of sin still there, but the power of sin has been broken. Because you see, if your if your knee-jerk answer to, to those questions is no, you gotta do a little bit of self-examination right now. I gotta shoot straight with you. Because Jesus says he is the supreme treasure in our lives. And he wants that to be, not just on Sunday morning when we're here together and it is wonderful to sing these songs and we're praising God together, but when it's at the school, when it's at the workplace, when it's at the home, that Jesus Christ is our supreme treasure and that we will choose him above all else. 
Because he says in Luke chapter 14, verse 26 and 27, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, just to be clear, Jesus is not saying you should hate your own family. That was a submitted phrase to say you should love them less. So Jesus is saying you should love them less than me. Even your own family, even yourself should be less than Jesus. And so my aim right now, preaching to you and those who might be listening online, is that it would be resolved in your heart that Jesus is the supreme treasure of my life. And that I would be willing to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ. Even if, it's, even if I had to take a blow there, I would be willing to do so because I love Jesus that much. If you're sitting in that place today and saying, yes, amen, that is my heart. By God's grace, I will do it. Rejoice. You're taking up your cross and you're following the Lord. Amen. 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 Let me keep reading verse 3 and 4. For the time that is past suffices to do it what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Now, let me clarify something. When Peter says Gentiles, he's not just talking about uh, Gentiles in general, because pretty much this, the, the churches he's writing to, they were Gentile Christians. He's using Gentiles to mean non-Christians here, okay? So that's what he's getting at there. Uh, he says in verse 3, why, he explains why we live for God's will instead of those sinful desires. He's saying basically, look, we've already spent enough time doing those things, right? Uh, maybe not exactly the things he's talking about in those, in those verses there, but we have spent time living for ourselves. That is the nature of sin, isn't it? It may not be criminal and graphic, but we're living for ourselves. Peter says enough of that, right? We've done enough of that. We need to start living for the will of God. And Peter mentions a slew of different sins here that focus primarily on sexual morality and, and drinking parties. It was very common in the Roman Empire that they would have these different parties and all kinds of immorality taking place there. It'd be social gatherings, even in their pagan religious ceremonies, whose things were interwoven into how they worshiped and so forth. Peter also mentions lawless idolatry. He's not talking about how they were breaking the laws of the land, because actually it was very expected that citizens of the Roman Empire would participate in these festivals. He's talking about God's laws, breaking God's laws here, pursuing this idolatry. Now, as Peter points out, sometimes non-Christians are surprised when someone leaves behind their old ways and they don't participate in those sins anymore. Literally, it says they're, it says they're surprised that you don't run together. We still kind of use that phrase even today, don't we, right? Run together. Oh, yeah, I used to run, I used to run with those guys. You know, we used to do this and do that together. We'd run together. We would do things together. And here's what, what Peter's talking about, is that sometimes with the things that we used to run with with people, all of a sudden we become Christians. We don't want to run and do those things anymore, right? We're not, we don't want to go to the bars and get drunk anymore or, or to try to hook up with people or gossip or whatever it might be. There's a change that's taking place in our hearts. Praise God. At least there should be. And sometimes 
You might have a non-Christian friend, and they're like, okay, I'm curious about this Jesus thing, and, and, and tell me more about it. But then you might have other non-Christian friends, they're not curious, they're furious, aren't they? Yeah. Because they lost their drinking buddy. They lost their gossip partner at the office. And they're mad at you. They don't like it. And then some of you might have experienced that. I think Peter's just suddenly saying another reminder here. You know what? We're exiles, aren't we? We're exiles. He started the letter by saying, I'm writing to you, the elect exiles. We're spiritual exiles here on this planet. We're waiting for the return of Christ to bring a new creation. When we're trying here in this fallen world to carry out his mission. But this isn't our perfect home, is it? It's not the home we're waiting for. That is coming in the future. It's not here right now. Verse 5 and 6, Peter speaks of that end time and specifically brings in final judgment. He says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel is preached even to, the, to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Not Christians are going to face judgment by Christ when he returns. Face judgment for the sins of their lives, but also, as Peter is getting at here, for the way they've mistreated Christians and causing them to suffer unjustly. And in verse 6, he's speaking about believers who had died. Notice what he says, that in the flesh they were judged in the sense that they died because of sin like everyone else do. And that's true. Christians are like everybody else. We all died because of our sin. But there's something else, isn't there? And that's what we were just rejoicing on Easter last weekend. They might live in the spirit the way God does. It's not ashes to ashes, dust to dust, is it? Jesus guarantees that dust to I think Peter's even saying, look, when they die, they go to be with the Lord. Or he might be saying that they might live by the Spirit, for the Holy Spirit. Remember back in chapter 3, verse 18, it talked about how Jesus, how he was raised by the Spirit. And God's going to do the same thing for us. Either way you interpret it, the bottom line is that we have future glory waiting for us. Amen? And just as... Jesus was vindicated after suffering unjustly, so too God's people will be vindicated after suffering unjustly. <laughs> we have such a glorious inheritance waiting for us. Amen, church? Amen. 1 Peter 1, 4, 5 says, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded in faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last focus focus on Christ's suffering the second part is focus on Christ's return I had a segue here and Peter continues it let's read verses 7 to 9 the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So he refers to the end of all things. He says there in verse 7. A good question is, what did the early church think about Jesus' return? What did they think about that? Did they think it was going to happen there at any moment? Did they think there might be a delay and so forth? I think 
Sometimes people get really confused about this question, but we shouldn't be. I think the Bible's pretty clear about this. They believe that Jesus' return was imminent, but not necessarily immediate. Does that make sense? Let me explain. By imminent, I'm saying Jesus has accomplished all the acts of redemption that are there to be done. He came to this earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross. He rose again. He ascended to the Father. And now we're sitting here waiting for him to return, right? There's nothing else that needs to happen. You can go back to that. It's very significant in terms of a redemptive act of God. So his return is imminent. But that doesn't necessarily mean they thought it was going to be immediate. Jesus teaches this himself in Luke 19. He tells a parable called the parable of the Minas. He says in verse 11, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem. And because they supposed, listen to this, that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Y'all see that? So he's teaching himself. I, I'm going to come. There's nothing left. But it may not be immediately. There might be a delay. There might be a time that we have to see the kingdom of God expand and so forth. So his return, though, is imminent. And this should motivate how we live our lives. His return should motivate how we live our lives. It's not just meant to satisfy, you know, prophetic timetables. The, the return of Christ is chiefly given in Scripture to motivate how we live. And Peter gives four different things that he mentions here. First, he says we're to be self-controlled and sober-minded. We're to take our Christian lives very seriously, like in the poem I just read, right? We're to take this uh, very seriously. This is things that we are focused on as Christians. And we're to focus on eternity. We're to focus on the advance of the kingdom. Notice how he says that this is for the sake of your prayers. So what does that mean? I think it means that when we're praying, this is like the heartbeat of our prayers. Remember the Lord's Prayer that Jesus taught us how to pray? We're praying for the glory of God to spread. And then we're to pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Our prayers aren't just about the things in our lives. That's important to pray about. But we're to have a kingdom mindset, amen? amen? This is what we're supposed to be praying about. Are we praying for this? God's kingdom is coming, and he wants us to be part of it. He also says there the word to love one another earnestly. Peter's mentioned this a couple times so far, back in chapter 122 and 3.8. But here Peter stresses love's important by saying, above all. Love is the supreme virtue, isn't it, church? And we should abound in love, especially knowing that the return of Christ is imminent. Right? It could happen soon. So we should live our lives with a sense of love toward one another. A lot of different things we could say about love. But let me just focus on what Peter says here. But look back to verse, the verse there. Verse 8. Why should we love? Love covers a multitude of sins. According from Proverbs 10 12. Now Peter is not saying that love atones for sins. Only the blood of Christ atones for sin. Amen? But he is saying that when we are wronged by others, we should forgive instead of hold grudges. So if we say that we love others, 
we must be willing to forgive them, even if they don't know that they have wronged us. That's right, I just said that. Even if they don't know that they've wronged us. Maybe they have no idea that they've done something to you. Or maybe you're in a stalemate with that person where you think they've done something wrong and they genuinely do not know what they've done. They don't agree with you. You ever get in those situations sometimes where you're trying to share where a hurt has occurred and the person doesn't agree? And they're not trying to be stubborn or rude or whatever, but they just don't agree? What do we do in that situation? Do we dig in our heels and just stay mad at them? Peter's telling us love covers a multitude of sins. Love chooses to move forward and not stay in the past. Love chooses to focus on something more important, God and that person and his kingdom and so forth. Love covers a multitude of sins. Let me ask you a couple of questions if we're talking about love and forgiveness. Are you easily offended? Are you easily offended? In other words, are you easily angered at what other people might say about you or do to you? And you spend a lot of time replaying that in your mind. I know before I became a Christian, that was something I would do. I would replay conversations and think about what they said and what I should have said. And I would do that. And I'm so thankful that when I became a Christian, God started delivering me from that and giving me more freedom. Instead of being easily offended, you should easily forgive. Amen? Amen. Love covers a multitude of sins. And so if something happens in your life and you're tempted to hold that bitterness in, let me encourage you to think along maybe these lines. I'm sure they didn't mean it. They probably have a bad day. But we have a long track record of good times and good memories. We'll focus on that. Love covers a multitude of sins. Yes, there's a time and a place to have a conversation when things are hurt and there just needs to be a discussion. But I'm a big believer that the great majority of offenses that we take can be forgiven without a word being spoken. Because love covers a multitude of sins. If we believe that verse... We need to put it, put it in, in practice. practice then. And then the second question I want to ask you is, is there someone here this morning that you need to forgive? That you need to forgive? Because the Word of God tells us that we are to forgive. Again, whether they ask for it or not, we are to repent of bitterness. God has forgiven us so much. Amen. And he does not want us, and he will not allow us to hold on to unforgiveness. Colossians 3.13 says, 
bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And even if those, if you don't feel like it, even if you don't have the feelings for it, if you will just obey what God has called us to do, my experience is the feelings catch up with our actions. Amen? So we've seen we're supposed to be sober-minded as we're thinking about the return of Christ. Self-control, love earnestly. He also says to show hospitality. Show hospitality. In the early church, this was so vital because, you know, these missionaries were traveling around. They couldn't afford uh, safe uh, lodging. And so people would put them up into their homes. And you know what? They didn't have church buildings. Uh, their gatherings were in people's houses, Right? And so hospitality was absolutely essential in the early church. Nowadays, of course, we do have church buildings, but the, but the need for hospitality has not gone away. And I think this is a very overlooked and an important part of the Christian life. You say, why is it important? Hospitality is important, friend, because it is a display of how God treats us. When we were alienated from God, he welcomed us in as strangers, didn't he? Because of the sacrifice of Christ, he welcomes us. We didn't even seek him, and he welcomed us into his family. And that's the very heart of hospitality, is that you are telling other people, I value you. You're welcome in my house. I want you to come and be blessed when you are in our presence. That is the heart of hospitality. Sometimes we get so hung up on what hospitality is not. We think of hospitality as, oh, I have to have a beautiful home. Oh, oh, I have to have a certain amount of space. Or, oh, I have to be able to be a good cook. Or I have to be able to be a good conversationalist and all of those things. Yeah, those things are nice. I'm not dismissing those things. They can add some spice to a meeting and so forth. But you can go and have a wonderful meal at somebody's house, but if you don't feel welcome, is the meal really that great? The heart of hospitality is that you are welcoming others into your home and into your presence. Let me ask you to pray about something this morning. Would you pray about growing in your hospitality in the coming days? I know with all, everybody's got different COVID sensibilities and so forth. I'm not saying this and that. You, you have to manage all that in your own time and place. But God wants us to be hospitable. He wants us to be thinking about welcoming strangers into our home, welcoming people in the church into our home. Maybe it's people in your neighborhood. Maybe it's people in the church. Maybe it's hosting a life group in the fall. Will you pray about that? Because I think it is so vital. And I'm giving you the entire summer to clean up your house. <laughs> so it can be spick and span. I didn't hear that. The fourth one is use your spiritual gifts. Let's read verses 10 and 11 together. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong glory and dominion and forever. 
Amen. So Peter says that each Christian has received a gift, a spiritual gift. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Now the question is, are the gifts that God gives to the church, are they given to each of us so that we can puff ourselves up and think great things about ourselves, or are they meant for another reason? They're meant for another reason so that we serve others. Any gift you have is meant to be a blessing to other people. And God, church, he wants us to be good stewards of these gifts. Amen? He says there we are to be good stewards of God's various grace. He wants us to use our gifts well. I think every Christian should know what their spiritual gift or gifts are. And they should want to be growing in them so that they're using them to bless those around them. Now, we know from other passages that there are a lot of different spiritual gifts. Peter, though, he just simply classifies them as either speaking gifts or serving gifts. As far as speaking gifts, what he gets at there is it is essential that they speak oracles of God. What is he getting at? I think what he's saying there is that when someone is speaking and they're teaching the word of God, whether it's from a Sunday morning sermon, whether it's a Sunday school class, whether it's a life group, whatever it might be, they need to be speaking in line with the word of God. Amen. It needs to be an explanation of the passage like I'm trying to do here. Or if you're making an application from the passage you see where it connects, right? It's not like, oh, here's the interpretation of the passage. Now I'm going to apply it, and it's way out in left field. No, that's not working, is it? It needs to line up with the Word of God. It's not the speaker's own knowledge or his eloquence that ultimately matters. It is the Word of God that matters. That's why I work very hard here on Sunday mornings faithful to the text because I want the text to talk to our hearts. Everyone who speaks scripture should seek to do that, to be faithful to the oracles of God. We should have the utmost respect for the scripture as the word of God. Peter also mentions those who serve. They should serve in the strength that God gives, not their own. We need to rely on, all, on not on our strength, but God's strength, right? And notice in both cases, you see how both need God. The speakers rely on the word of God. The servers, they rely on the, on, on the strength of God. And when we realize, realize this dependence, then who is the one who, who gets all the glory? It's God, right? He gives the resources he gets the glory. And that leads to a very fitting doxology in verse 11. Peter closes this long section. Remember, he's been talking about how do we live in an unbelieving world. But all the way since chapter 2, he closes with this glorious doxology. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. All we do, all we say should be for the glory of God. There is no higher goal for the Christian than to live for the glory of God. 
That should be our highest desire. If it's not, may God stir in us this morning to make that our ambition in life, that whatever we do, whatever we eat, whatever we say, whatever we speak, all of it should be for the glory of God. As we close in prayer, I would like you to stand this morning. But I'd like you to stand with me. And I would invite you to lift up your hands to God as a way of saying that, Lord, I am giving you everything. And I'm asking you to use me and all that I have for your glory and for your honor. Let us pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it always challenges us, corrects us, instructs us in who you are and how you want us to live. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for the word here, this challenge about focusing on the suffering of Christ. And Lord, my prayer is that each of us would be willing to suffer unjustly for the sake of Christ, not for our own sins and our own stupid mistakes, but Lord, when it comes to your name and your glory, that we would choose you above all things. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to focus on your return and that it would affect our lives, that we would love each other earnestly above all things. Help us, Lord, to cover a multitude of sins that we might encounter with those around us by love. And Lord, if there's people this morning that we need to forgive, this moment now, Lord, we would give that over to you. Remembering what you have done for us, we are laying that down at the foot of the cross. Lord, help us to be more hospitable. To use whatever we have to welcome people, to value people. To let our friends and neighbors and church members know that they mean something to us. Help us not just to think about our lives and our situations, but welcoming those around us. And Lord, we give to you our spiritual gifts. We know your word says that you've given each of us spiritual gifts. May we be busy using them and growing them, all for your name and all for your glory. We love you, Lord Jesus. We want to give you the glory with our lives. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.